Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and with me today again is Chad. And today we're going to be talking uh, more about a role-playing game topic. I mean, we've talked a lot about movies in the last uh, few episodes, but today's topic we didn't really spend any time preparing for, so we're definitely going to be going off the cuff and you know shooting from the hip here. And that is Game Mastering on the Fly. So, how are you doing today, Chad? Oh, I'm doing good, man. That's good. And so the Game Mastering on the Fly is, it's something that I think just about every Game Master has to do at least once. And I believe when we were discussing about our episode on good bad guys, you said that you tend to run entire campaigns Game Mastering on the Fly. Yeah, to a lot of degree. Um, I mean, if if you're in the role playing, you've probably seen the meme out there that says, you know, let let ninety percent of your game be run by the paranoia of your players. Yeah, let let the players write ninety percent of the campaign with their paranoid conjecture. Yep, and and you know, and it works. And what I have found over the years that I've been doing this now, I've been I've been role playing since 1994, so that's what 22 years, and I've probably been running for 21 of those years. Mm-hmm. Um, I took to, to game mastering really early. I still do play on occasion, and I run, and uh, you know I like both sides of the screen. I really do. But as far as running a game, and I learned this early on, is one of the first things I would do is, you know, as, as a new game master, and I don't know if you did this or not, but I would sit down and I would write out everything. You know, step one, step two, step three, split in the road, step four and five, you know, the whole mm. works. I really did my players, oh. my players did none of it. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's interesting. The I think it's the second edition Game Master's Guide, went dungeon master's guide they mentioned that you know there was you as a game master you have to be able to expect the unexpected and adapt to it they referred to a study where they took uh, some scientists or researchers took a group of uh, monkeys and they put them in uh, in, a, in a cage with four possible ways to get out mm-hmm. guess what the monkey discovered a fifth way and that's because players don't always do exactly what you're going to expect. Uh, one good example. Now, before I go there, uh, you mentioned about early game mastering. Uh, when I first started trying to run games, I tended to go very much by the modules. Okay, so you did the canned modules. Uh, yes, I did a lot of the you know basic D and D ones like you know Isle of Dread, uh, Keep on the Borderlands. Uh, there's a few other basic modules I had when I was a kid. There's one one book that I had that had some really good adventures in it called Tall Tales of the Wee Folk. Okay. Uh, now, the it was released in, I'm wanting to say the early 90s. So at this time, I had been seriously gaming for about maybe four years or so. Okay. And See, Tall Tales of the Wee Folk, because uh, it was written for basic D&D. And that's one of the things I like about basic D&D, is it really had a lot of longevity. Because, you know, you figure it was made in the in the 70s, and yep. TSR continued to support it well until the 90s. Because, um, you know, they had the, the whole, you know, two-pronged approach where when they released advanced D&D, they still kept releasing the basic D&D stuff. Because right. they didn't see... 
they didn't see a need to replace basic Dungeons and Dragons. They're like, okay, you know, this is still a very fun, easy to run, easy to play system. But if you think you want something a little more, here's advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And, and, you know, at that point, they were pretty interchangeable, pretty simple conversions. Yep. You can go either way. Exactly. Um, I mean, you can run stuff for, uh, from basic Dungeons and Dragons with, you know, advanced Dungeons and Dragons with only a few conversions. And actually and, with the new fifth edition, you can convert basic and advanced real easily as well. Okay. And cause I haven't played as much fifth edition yet, but I mean, I can certainly see how it could be fairly easy to adapt because when my, my current group that, well, one of my groups that I play with, uh, occasionally, our game master is taking us on the keep on the borderlands and some of you know since it is a very basic adventure you know Mm -hmm. you've got stuff like ogres and orcs and goblins and stuff like that those are actually pretty easy to work with because every version of dungeons and dragons is going to have something in the monster manual about orcs or goblins and you know things like that right. these classic monsters the classic monsters not to mention keep on the borderlands has been published for every uh edition of D&D really cuz i mean i yep. i know they made a demo of it for for 5th edition i didn't know they made it for uh first second uh third or fourth keep on the borderlands actually i shouldn't say all of them i think it was a second edition module it was released in third. It was released in fourth, and then it was there was a full release of it in fifth as well. Okay, but they did tease it at first as one of their you know this is what fifth is going to look like, but then they did release the full hardcover module. Okay, so the uh, but I was going back to Tall Tales of the Wee Folk. It was yeah. part of the Creature Crucible series, and the Creature Crucible series was let's say you wanted to play basic D&D, but let's say you were tired of doing elves and dwarves and clerics and magic users and fighters. You could use the Creature creature Crucible series to create PCs that were monster races. Tall Tales of the Wee Folk was the first one. This focused on woodland creatures, like you could be centaurs, treants, Leprechauns, brownies, puka. Uh, so, you know, they, they had some really interesting characters in there. And one of the things that made it, well, they, in order to balance it with, you know, the regular players, mm-hmm. for some of the monster characters, you didn't start out at, you know, first level. Instead, you started out with negative experience points. And then that would be the equivalent of a first level character. So your monster PCs would have to work their way up to normal monster level, which would be with all the powers that they would have in, you know, as presented in the monster manual. And then from there you would start gaining levels. And there were four in this series, uh, Tall Tales of the Wee Folk, uh, which they said woodland creatures. The other one I have is called Top Ballista which takes place in a floating city. And you have things in there like sky gnomes, and I think they call them pegatars, basically centaurs with pegasus wings. Okay. And they had some other really weird stuff in there too, like tabby and naganis, and uh, I'm trying to think, harpies. So very different. And then there was also the sea people, 
So that would be like, you know, mermaids and tritons. And then night howlers, which was lycanthropes. But the way that the the games were made, or these books were released, it had two books in it. The first one was your player's book. And the second one had some adventures in it. Some of the adventures were short, fully fleshed out adventures. Others were just one-page things designed to be either a one-shot encounter or sometimes to serve as a as inspiration for a longer adventure. Now, in Tall Tales of the Wee Folk, to bring it back to where I was going, one of the adventures in there is called The Lost Seneschal. I have run this adventure several times, and each group found their own way to go through it. No playthrough was ever exactly the same. Right. One of my favorite playthroughs, uh, there is a part in this... Well, first let me tell you essentially what it's about. The Lost Seneschal, you've got a tax collector that's disappeared. So your characters are hired to go find this missing tax collector. And you get transported to the fairy realm. And while there, uh, you find out that the this tax collector has been imprisoned by an ogre who plans to either marry him or eat him for dinner. She's not quite sure which. Okay, fair so, enough. So most of the times when I've done that part, the players just basically run in, they kill the ogre, and rescue the tax collector. However, I had one group that had a female gamer in it, and she decided she was going to try to sweet talk with the ogre. She's like, well, if you're going to get married, you have to have a bachelorette party first, and your groom has to have a bachelor party. So she's like, you know, and of course, I went along with it because it was such a good idea. I had to let it work. Oh, yeah. You know, she's like, oh, you know, we'll have the female members of the party. We know we'll go fix your hair and make you all pretty. And, you know, your groom's going to go out. You know, they'll, they'll promise to bring them back, but they'll, you know, go out and just have a night on the town and then come back. And, you know, so like I said, it was just a, it was such a, I did not see that coming for one thing. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, everyone I've taken this on so far is pretty much charge in, kill the ogre. But here it's like, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, which is kind of the way, you know, modules are set up. Yep. You, you, you go you in. in. You be the hero and you go on to the next one. Exactly. So that was just one of those things that shows how, yeah, it's, sometimes you really have to be able to expect the unexpected. Now, there's several scenarios where you might have to game master on the fly. Now, one, I believe you said that you tend to do entire campaigns that way. I, I do. I do. Like I said, it's for me, well, I shouldn't say I, d- I don't wing the entire thing. I've got an end point. Um, I think we talked about this on one other podcast. When I write an adventure or when I set up an adventure, I have this huge arc, right? Mm-hmm. Start and finish points. And there's this big arc, if you if you picture it in your mind. Now, in between there, there's these certain things that I want to happen or that need to happen in order to make the start of the story mesh with the end of the story. And those are my little arcs. But I never write how they need to get there. See what I'm saying? Yeah, so it's like you, you let the players find their own way and Correct. just kind of go with it. Right. That's exactly it. And... I've learned over the years that if you let your players write the story or write the story with you, 
they're a lot more invested in playing those characters and not being to the point where they're like, well, you know, this character's not really working, so it's just a piece of paper and do something stupid to kill it. Yeah. And that is good when character when players do think up you know, in good backgrounds for their characters. And sometimes the game master kind of has their own thing that they do it. Uh, for example, in my current group that I'm playing second edition with, uh, we're about to do the Slave Lords series from first edition. Okay. And my, uh, one of the characters in the, one of the players in the group is playing a ninja. So the game master decided that he would have a little fun, that he has this side thing that he just decided to make up where it's like, okay, your, you know, your, your master, your, the head of your clan, there's these statues that you have to find. And I forgot the entire backstory he gave for it, but I just thought that was kind of an interesting little thing because, again, it keeps that player invested. And one the he's done that a little bit with some of our other players as well. But right now we're just at the point where our party is leveling up so we'll be able to tackle that module. Okay. So he has a couple of dungeons he made where, again, he just goes by the fly. And uh, he did have a couple of rooms that he made where, uh, like my, one of my characters I'm playing in, I'm playing two characters in this campaign, uh, one of them was a former slave who was a gladiator, and okay. in the he decided that okay, well, in since I'm playing this gladiator slave character, uh, the party meets him. He's locked in a cage, and then as they're going through this dungeon, they eventually come to a training room. And he said that my character would recognize this, and you know, again, he said I just kind of made that up on the fly because it's like, hey, we got a slave gladiator, so of course he's going to have somewhere to train. Mm-hmm. So that's so yeah one another situation where you might need to game master on the fly. Um, like I said maybe you don't have a module you want to run for the evening, but one thing that I'm sure every gamer has had this happen at least once. You ever had a situation where let's say you've got a group of seven people that's playing, and then turns out three people aren't going to show up that day. Right. So it's like you've got these four players now. What are you going to do with them? I mean, you might not want to do your main adventure or you might, you know, maybe you don't want to do the main adventure, but you still want to keep those four players entertained. Right. And there's there's several things you can do. I mean, we kind of talked about this beforehand, but, you know, one, I love to do side adventures, mm-hmm. you know, um, and especially, I mean, I'm I'm one of these guys. I'll run when half the group is there, as long as you know one of the players that's missing isn't a key component. Mm-hmm. You know, because sometimes when you're running a game, you know, one character or another kind of steps forward for a while, and kind of you know drives the story, and then they fall back, and somebody else comes up, and you know, you can run a side adventure. You can just throw something together just to, you know, to make the night. I've done that too, where I'm like, all right, use your characters, you know, take a, know where they are now, because at the end of the night, you're going to reset them for the other game, but let's do this. Yeah, because that's one thing I do sometimes is I like to introduce side quests. And what I do just to keep the flow of the campaign going, I, you know, I just try to think of like some reason, okay, the party got split up. You know, maybe some of them went off to chase something that disappeared into the forest. So now you got the other four players that are there and, you know, or maybe they, you know, again, something, if they were in a dungeon, 
you know, I might have like, okay, a, a trap triggers and then half the party is teleported to another part of the maze. And then I just kind of go from there. So one, actually, this is one use that you might have for pre-generated adventures, even if you don't really run them, is I find it really helpful to have the maps. Because when I was running one campaign, I didn't want to, well, I, I, I had my copy of Against the Giants from mm-hmm. first edition. And they have some really interesting maps in that particular adventure. So what I did is I decided, okay, the players have to rescue this king because there's an imposter that's taken his place. So I took one of the uh, one of the cave maps from Against the Giants, and okay. I used that as the basis for where they had to go in order to uh, rescue the the trapped king. And then I used some of the. It was helpful because you know, of course, the the three set. Uh, the three module set, there's lots of interesting NPCs in there and monster statistics. So I, I took some of the drow that were appear later on in the module and I brought them to uh, this, this maze and had them as part of the adventure. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason to definitely hold on to your old modules and keep a few handy because, as I said, Sometimes you might not want to play the adventure, but maybe there's a really cool map of a a castle or a cave in there that mm-hmm. could be helpful for running an on the fly, uh, well, you know, side quest. Right, and nowadays there there's no excuse not to have maps. You can get them offline. Pathfinder does it. I don't know if D and D does at this point, but Pathfinder does. They'll do what they call map folios. Okay, and. It'll be specific to a type of thing, like there's a map folio for, you know, a high seas. So they've got boats in there, they've got small islands, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I, you can pick these up for ten, twelve, fifteen bucks, and you get three, four nice, you know, that you can write on with the erasable marker and the whole works. I mean, it for the investment, and you can use those for whatever. Mm-hmm. And one place to go, um, if you don't mind getting PDFs, uh, the site that I sell my stuff through, drivethroughstuff.com, if you go there, there are there's a section for Game Master Resources. And there are companies out there that do make various you know map products. Yeah, um, one but- that you know and one that I did, uh, Mazes and Missions. Um, so that one it contains several blank maps and then it also has a few skeletal adventures and some you know, NPCs that, you know, I give their base stats for, and then how you want to use those NPCs is up to you. Um, For example, there's one group I made called the Three Wish Bandits, where uh, their their backstories are a group of bandits that manage to to come in contact with a ring of three wishes, and each one made a wish that makes them tough but not undefeatable so the secret is you know I mean, they're, they're designed to be the kind of antagonists that you can kind of weave in and out of the campaign but what the players will probably want to do is try to find out okay what was the wish that each of these characters made so we can find a way to exploit their weakness right and that's one thing where i think that well i know dungeons and dragons has done this but and I think you mentioned that Pathfinder does this where they've got like a, a book of NPCs. 
Yeah, the NPC uh, codex, they call it. Yeah, and I know that uh, TSR, back in the day, they released various books that had statistics and game information for various prominent NPCs. So those are some other good uh, places to go if you are looking for a way to game master on the fly. You might, and I I think you said you usually use that uh, NPC codex where it's like, okay, I need... I need a high-level fighter. So you flip through the book. Okay, here's a high-level fighter. So it has all the stats fleshed out. Yep. Or, you know, something as simple as, you know, I need a barmaid, you know, and I flip through there and I find a low-level, you know, whatever. She might be a low-level maid. She might be a low-level. Um, the, the, the one thing they don't really have in there are, like, your common classes, you know, your commoner classes. Mm-hmm. The, you know, you can you can adjust any low level character to be a barmaid because you know, in a world like D and D or Pathfinder, nobody's just a barmaid. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, uh, when you say barmaid, that always thinks gets me to think of uh, Tika Whalen from the Dragonlance series, where even though she's this barmaid, uh, she's actually a multi class fighter thief. She right. started out as a thief, but then eventually became a fighter. So, and it's kind of funny that one of her favorite weapons they had was the frying pan. And on some of the old Dragonlance modules, they actually had the game statistics for Tika's frying pan. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, and I think it was like 1d8 damage. So, because there was a scene where she beat up uh, some bad guys using a frying pan. But yeah, those are, so those are some resources that can be very useful. And one place that... I think can be influential. Well, let me rephrase that. One place that you might want to go for inspiration when you're trying to game master on the fly, sometimes movies and TV shows will have nice little plot points that you can take that you can use if you have to do a session on the fly. Yep. I, in fact, I can. Uh, I just did that. I was listening to um, one of these live role play okay. sessions. And I just love the way that they had opened up this one session. You know, they had opened it up. These people had been drugged. And when they woke up, they were in what they thought was a meat locker. But there was no lights in there, you know, that kind of thing. So as they they, they scrounge around and they find ways to get light, and then they figure out that they're actually in this. It's it's a refrigerator of sorts, but it's just all these bodies hanging from the ceiling. Ooh. Off hooks, Okay. And it was just like, you know, and just the way the players reacted to it, I'm like, you know, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So I actually took that and I blatantly stole it and I blatantly <laughs> my games. Um, I didn't I didn't really change I mean the way my players reacted as compared to the way the ones online reacted are different. But as far as what they saw and you know what it was leading to I, you know, sometimes it was just, it, it was just one of those things where I was so impressed with the way the guy had did it, had done it, that, you know, I used that as inspiration. Now, the minute they got out of their locker versus when my players got out of their locker, the story was completely different. But to pull them into it, to pull them into the fact that there's a bad guy out there who, you know, kills wantonly, 
it worked perfect. Yeah, and when you talk about being drugged, that's another good way that you can introduce a partial party into a side adventure. Like, again, maybe you have a situation where half your group isn't going to be there. So what you might do is you might say that, okay, for the players that are still there, you know, you wake up in a prison cell without your armor, your weapons, and your equipment. So now, you know, because maybe you were at an inn and someone had slipped some, you know, some knockout poison into your food or your drink, and they took you to the, you know, to be sold as slaves or to be used as a, for gladiatorial events. And then, you know, you can assume that the other part of the party, the the people that weren't there, you know, they did something that let them earn the same amount of experience points as the two groups came back together. Mm -hmm. So you've probably played several different systems over the course of your gaming years. Are there any any game systems that you think are really good for running on the fly? For me personally... Pathfinder actually runs pretty easily on the fly if you have people who know how to play Pathfinder. Okay. Because otherwise you can get really bogged down in creating characters. And I have the same complaint with D&D. Sometimes character creation can take longer than it needs to, you know, especially if people aren't familiar with it. Yeah, and I can definitely agree with that. Don't get me wrong. I love 2nd Edition. It's my favorite version of Dungeons and Dragons, but I mean, you, you just can look at all the complete handbooks they have. You know, they have oh, one yeah. for each of the classes, and they have the complete Barbarians handbook, the complete Ninjas handbook. They have the historical reference handbooks. There's like one for Vikings. There's one for the Crusades. There's one for the Celts, the Greeks, but the there's, Romans. There's a real easy way to fix all that. If you got guys that you know know how to play the system and you just want to have quick characters, you say core book. Yep. And that's my guys are really used to that. <laughs> and uh, I think they hate me for it, but you know, yeah, cause I mean, some of that stuff, you can make some pretty impressive characters if you know how to work with the stuff. Like um, in my current second edition campaign that I'm playing in, I've got a dwarven swashbuckler who has an armor class of negative two, and he's not wearing any magic armor. And oh, yeah. basically, he just wears leather armor and carries a buckler. So, you know, the reason he has that low AC is because I use some stuff from the Complete Ninjas handbook, and I use some stuff from uh, the a Mighty Fortress handbook. I mean, it is all legit. Now, the problem, though, is in order for my character to have that you know, really low AC, he needs to be using a very specific set of weapons and armor. Um, You know, like, for example, with him being a swashbuckler, he gets an armor class bonus, but it only applies if he's wearing leather armor or lighter. So if he put on plate mail, he would lose that particular bonus. And then some of the other skills he has that, you know, improves his armor class, it requires him to be using a specific set of weapons. So, yeah, yeah, but uh, even if you go just by the core book, right? uh, you know, it's still second edition and I think first edition too are pretty easy to run. I think it would probably be a little harder with third edition. I I might be wrong on that because I haven't played as much of third or 3.5 because I know with 3.5 you have all the feats and stuff. 
Right. So it's not like, okay, you're fighting against, you know, an eighth. It depends on what level you're making too. Because 3.5, sure, there's feats and all that stuff. But if you just say, okay, we're going to make a first level character, one feat. You have to pick one feat unless you're a fighter, then you have to pick two feats. Yeah. And I think the, or isn't it humans are the ones that get the bonus feat? Um, I think it's like, yeah, all characters start with one feat, but, um, the, but the humans start with one additional one. Right. Humans start with one additional one and then fighters get an additional feat. Yeah. They, that's their level. Yeah. Cause like I said, example, let's say that in, you know, first or second edition, if you're going to make us, you know, a 12th level fighter, let's just say for, uh, you know, a major NPC, Mm -hmm. pretty easy to do. Decide what weapons can he use, what weapons is he specialized in, what armor and weapons is he carrying, how many hit points does he have. But well, I can see how in like 3.5 that would be a lot trickier because well, it's yeah, – even if you're just going by the book because it's like, okay, what feats do I want to give him? Okay, right. let's, so with 3.5, if you're making – let's say we're making a human fighter 12th level. You have to give that character nine – count them – nine feats. Yeah, and then you think, okay, and that's just the you know the feats, and then you think of the what skills will he have, right? And you know, then even you got to decide still what magic weapons and equipment and stuff does he have? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as ease of running a running a pickup game for me, it's Call of Cthulhu. Okay, and I'll tell you why. You roll your stats, and then everything else is based off your stats. And everything is percentage-based. So you roll your stats. From your stats, you get your class points to spend, okay? And those go only into five or six different um, skills. And then you get your bonus skills, and they can go on all of them. But top to bottom, in a, in a pickup game where I don't worry about money and I don't worry about, you know equipment and that kind of stuff. If it makes sense, I let them run with it type thing. 15 minutes, you can have everybody's character made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd have to say for me, one game system, unfortunately out of print, so you might need to go to like eBay or use bookstore to find it, but TSR's Marvel Superheroes. And longtime listeners to the show know that I, I do enjoy this game. I've talked about it several times. Um, I would I recommend getting the basic set because in the advanced Marvel superheroes it starts to get a little too complex. But everything in basic Marvel superheroes is actually very streamlined and very easy to run. The box set contained character cards with various heroes, and oh. the book included a, a it included a, a judge's book that had. The stats for various major, you know, well, in the 80s, remember when it was written, but right. some of the more pre- uh, famous, more well-known heroes and villains. So that could be really easy to run something on the fly if you're doing a superhero campaign. Because oh, it yeah. might be like, you know, okay, uh, Doctor Doom, Loki, and Red Skull uh, up, you know, appear right in front of you. So what do you do? You know, and there you've got a counter that you can roll pretty quickly. And 
you know, the book actually does talk about some of the motivations of some of these villains. Okay. Um, so the, a good example might be, um, let's try to think of his name, uh, Arcade. Are you familiar with Arcade and Murder World? No, I am not. Okay. Arcade is, um, he's a villain who, he's, his method of killing people, because he is a professional assassin, is he drugs his victims and he takes them to a murder world, which is a place that he sets up with various traps. Arcade's thing is that if you want someone dead, pay him a million dollars. And then he'll get that person drugged and he'll take him to a murder world that he sets up. His only stipulation is that there has to be a slim chance for you to survive. And even though he really doesn't make much profit creating these murder worlds, he does it just because he likes watching people get killed in his murder worlds. Sounds an awful lot like the Saw movies. In a way, it kind of is, except <laughs> um, unlike, because I believe with the Saw movies, um, the, uh, what's his name? I forgot. Um, no idea. Yeah. The, I've actually Jigsaw. never seen the movies. I've seen a couple of them. They're eh, kind of little too gory for my taste, but because I, as I recall, the reason that the jigsaw killer puts you in his traps is to teach you a lesson on how to value your life. But again, it is along the same thing where he does allow you a chance to escape your trap. Um, it's just, you're probably going to have to endure a great deal of pain and discomfort in order to escape. Right. So as I said, it's kind of the same thing with a uh, mer- getting put in, in a murder world. The only difference is, yeah, Arcade, he's trying to kill you. He's not trying to teach you how to value your life. Okay. So that's one system that I always felt was really easy to run. Um, another one, and again, this is another out-of-print game, Dream Park, which Dream Park is set in a futuristic amusement park. Think of it as a high-tech live-action role-playing game. Okay. And it's, you know, it's very easy to create characters for it. And then the, the NPC booklet, or I'm sorry, the, the rule booklet comes with a variety of NPCs. And, you know, since it comes with different player cards, you know, you could easily just say, pull out a superhero card and, hey, there's a superhero you got to fight. And then it has base statistics for, like, everything from grunts and thugs to really powerful monsters. One of the other things I like to do when we're talking about GMing on the fly is I work, I volunteer some time with a local game club um, at the school here. It's a middle school, high school club. And if I get students or, you know, kids that are, they don't want to role play because they're intimidated by, you know, the any aspect of it, whether it's, you know, talking in front of a group, because it really is, I mean, you're, you're, you're doing public speaking when you do this, you know, whether it's that or looking at the, the character sheets and going, oh, my God, how do I, you know, how does this work kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, okay, I've got this uh, skill called um, murderous power strike. What does that do? Exactly. So instead of me sitting these kids down and going, okay, we're going to play, you know, whatever system. I just say, okay, guys. Instead of doing that, let's just go. I'll, I'll pick three or four students that so we'll, we'll go to another room and I'll say, okay, 
let's just all practice telling a story. And then I'll sit each kid down and I'll go, okay, what kind of character do you want to play? And this is where it really gets to be on the fly for me is because I can have one kid go, well, I want to be an elven archer. Excellent. And the next kid goes, well, I want to be a 1920s mobster with a Tommy gun. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay. And and you don't want to discourage them at this point because you're just trying to get them to, you know, tell a story. Exactly. And, I mean, and if you're... Uh, doing a, a session like that and you've got, you know, you're telling kids, no, you can't do that. You know, yeah, that can kind of kill the fun, especially, right. for, you know, people who are just, you know, you're trying to introduce the role playing hobby to. Right. And so I'll go through and, you know, all four kids or all three kids will tell me this is what I want to do. And then I jump into my head quick and I go, okay, what can I do with this? And just using those two, those two examples I gave you, you know, so I've got an elven archer. And I've got a 20s gangster that wants a Tommy gun. <laughs> okay, so now I say, okay, so this is Chicago, 1926. And the elven archer goes, well, there weren't elves. And I go, no, but okay, so you came through some sort of a portal. You know, you were out, you were in the elven in the woods, you were hunting for deer. You took a step and all of a sudden you're on a street corner in Chicago. <laughs> now, you don't know what Chicago is. But you've got all your equipment. You've got your bow. You've got your arrows. You know, everything. And then I'll go, okay, now you little mobster boy, you come around the corner and you see something that is completely out of, out of sorts. What? And we just sit down and I just talk them through telling a story. And then sometimes they're silly. Sometimes they get, you know, these kids, especially middle schoolers, they tend to go very violent very quickly. <laughs> And, you know, you got to pull them back and you go, no, you know, you wouldn't just walk around the, the corner and level somebody with your Tommy gun because chances are, if it's just a normal day, you're not walking around with your Tommy gun. Yep. So, and I'll work them through things that way. And it just allows them to get that feel of what role playing is without the, the added extra hassle of the dice and the rules and the. You know, if he comes in, he goes, I want to run up the side of the wall and do a flip and land on my feet. All right. You run up the side of the wall, you do a flip and you land on your feet. The only difference between that and doing it in a system for me, at least the way I run is I don't say roll, <laughs> you know, cause I always, I've always played and I always do play with the theory that if you want to try it, sure. There may be negatives. You may say, you know, whatever it is, I may think, you know, there's no way they can do this. But with a die 20 system, any one of them, if you roll a natural 20, guess what? You do it. Yep. Yes, I saw this meme on Facebook. Someone posted it. It had a picture of a 20-sider with the 20-side up. And it's like, if only real life, it's like critical success. If only real life allowed you to, gave you a 5% chance to succeed at everything or anything. And, but that's a, that's a cool idea. And I I know diceless role-playing is its own topic because, you know, yeah, you can tell that story and do that impromptu theater, but still there's the question of, you know, rules. How do you determine whether someone can do something or not? And there are diceless systems out there. The one that hits my ear all the time is Amber. Mm-hmm. It's one that I've played a couple times. Honestly, I love it. I love diceless mm-hmm. yeah. because it's more of a story. And, and I mean, anybody that really knows me knows I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. They're not always good stories, but I'll tell you a story, you know? Yeah, and, you know, there's this one 
system I heard about. I read a review for it on RPG.net. For the life of me, I can't remember what it was called, but the main game mechanic revolved around, you know that game Jenga? Yep. Where, um, again, it was designed to be a very strong story-based storytelling game. And whenever you were going to do something that, you know, if you wanted to do something that was really impossible um, or extremely difficult and you wanted to, to be able to succeed, you had to take a piece out of the, you know, out of the Jenga thing. So eventually, as you are, you know, doing more and more complex things, you're starting to take more out. So it's only a matter of time before you fail. Right. So, I mean, I could definitely see something like that being interesting for, I could even say like a Call of Cthulhu type campaign where, you know, you do have to do a lot of, you know, clue searching and, you know, where you are encountering things that there's absolutely no way you can beat. And, you know, your only hope is just trying to escape them. Right, right. I mean, would you say that pretty much sums up what Call of Cthulhu is about? Yeah, Call of Cthulhu is, it's, it's, it's practice and not going insane. (laughs) You know, it's one of those games you're not going to win. I mean, you don't really ever win at role-playing. You just move on to the next adventure. Yeah, in Call of Cthulhu, it's like, you don't win. You keep your sanity longer than everyone else. Exactly, exactly. It's, you know, the first thing, when I introduce Call of Cthulhu to people, the first thing they're always like, oh, I'm going to need a weapon. Mm, Not really. Yeah, your, sorry, your 12-gauge shotgun isn't going to do much against, uh, you know, uh, a deep one or whatever they're called. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your, your 12 gauge is not bringing a Bayaki down. It's just not yeah. going to work. It's just, you know, but nobody, you know, and, and the big stigma, um, with one of the groups I played Call of Cthulhu with for a while, and I don't run for them anymore because at least not Call of Cthulhu because, you know, the whole idea is to see how far you can push the envelope before you go insane. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things is anything book-based, you know, you have tomes and you have, uh, you know, the, the famous one, the Necronomicon, mm-hmm. you know, and all these things, the more knowledge you have, the actually, the, the, the closer to insane you get. Hmm. You know, that's, so, you know, I'd put a book out, like there was one scenario I ran where I was like, all right, guys, you, you go, you're investigating in this house and they're like, well, do we, what are we finding? You know, I'm not going along and. Somebody rolls and he goes, I'm going to look through the books. Do I see anything that looks interesting? You know? And I said, okay, make a search roll. They made a search roll. I'm like, yeah, there's one book that, um, you know, it's, it's got a language. Uh, it looks like a Germanic language, but you can't really read it because they, you know, they didn't have that language skill, you know? And they're like, okay. And they refused to touch it. They refused to touch it. And they refused to touch it. They didn't, you know, finally somebody took it off of there and, they looked at it and they refused to open it. And, you know, everyone's like, if we look at it, we're going to go insane. And it's just like that, that's not the spirit of the game, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, you know what it was? It was just a German Lutheran Bible. Oh, <laughs> I said, Call of Cthulhu is definitely one of those games that I want to give a shot to sometime. Uh, Cause I, I know you're not into video games, but uh, I used to watch this show called cinematics and okay. What it did is, this was back in like 2007 or so, what it did is they took cutscenes from different video games and they put them together to form, you know, a coherent movie. Mm -hmm. Because 
that's the way games are nowadays with the voice acting and the oh, God, yeah. animation. Some, some of these games, I'll, I'll see a you know commercial on TV and not realizing what I'm looking at, I'm like, this is going to be a great movie. And then you're like, oh. It's a video <laughs> game. But if you ever got an, X, an original Xbox, uh-huh. there's one game that I think you would probably get into. It's called Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of the Earth. It uses that same insanity mechanic where when your character sees you know, certain you know, like gory or um, unusual things, he starts to go insane. And okay. in order to uh, not go insane, you have to somehow stop looking at that thing or you have to get further away from it. But it's different than a lot of sh- first-person shooter type games because your ammo is very, very limited. So you're you're encouraged to avoid conflict whenever possible. Another thing that I heard about this game that was actually kind of interesting is it's not like a lot of games where you have health. Um, if you can get hurt, like let's say you jump off of a building and you hurt your leg, well, your character is going to start to move slower. So in order to fix that, you have to find a splint, put that on your leg, and eventually it would heal up. And it yeah. did that with other things too. So that's a kind of game that if you were into Xbox, I could see you getting into that. Yeah, you know, and, and Call of Cthulhu is one of those things where if you get shot, chances are you are going to die. You know, it's not it's not a game like D&D or something where you can go to negative hit points and... You know, you get, yeah, you get stabbed a few times and you just go to your clear, hey, uh, can I have a couple cure light wounds there, buddy? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, uh, no. <laughs> so yeah, the Call of Cthulhu, your choices are go insane or die. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, well, I suppose that, that's considered going insane. I was going to say, or go to Arkham in, uh, Asylum, but that's pretty much being because you're insane. <laughs> yep. Well, we're going to wrap this episode up. So I hope that it didn't come off as too disorganized. Like I said, we were doing this off the fly because, again, we're talking about gaming on the fly. So we did this podcast off the fly as well and really didn't do a lot of uh, advance, didn't do too much advanced preparation. But, Chad, if people want to read some of your writings that you have taken time to prepare, where can they find it? Well, they can find my blog at NUOSU at, or I'm sorry. NUOSU.blogspot.com. They can come find me there. At, it's uh, called Nut Up or Shut Up. And it's uh, basically, it's just a blog that uh, a couple friends of mine and I do that just, it's kind of a feel good blog and uh, weight loss kind of thing. So it's, it's not gaming related at all, but it's, uh, I think it's still a good read. So come check me out there. Okay. And of course, you can find me at, POIGamestudio.com. You can uh, find me also on Facebook, Point of Insanity Game Studio uh, on Facebook. And then if you uh, like watching videos of video game footage and some of the video game related episodes I've done, go to YouTube and look up Point of Insanity Game Studio. So thank you for joining us and have a good morning or evening or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are. And Happy gaming.